0: This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew Wappett. Most of us don't think about evolution often, if at all. And when we do, we often conjure up images of Charles Darwin in the Galapagos Islands. But over the past 160 years, the study of evolution has itself evolved. The study of evolution today is less about fieldwork in exotic locations and more about mathematics, complexity theory, and machine learning. The study of evolution has shown us that we are all connected and that humans are just a small leaf on the much bigger tree of life. This week, we're talking about why you ought to care about evolution with Dr. Luke Harmon from the University of Idaho. Dr. Harmon is a professor in the Department of Biology at the University of Idaho. Dr. Harmon's research focuses on ecology and evolutionary biology, particularly in reptiles and amphibians. Dr. Harmon has published over 100 scientific articles with a particular focus on analytical techniques for understanding the speed of evolution and the relationship between the physical traits of species. Dr. Harmon is also a key member of the team behind OneZoom.org, an online interactive map of the evolutionary links between all living things known to science. Luke, thanks for being here today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Matt. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah. So how did you become interested in studying evolution? That's a great question. I was not really into evolution or even biology as a kid. You know, you talk to a lot of biologists and they're like, I started out catching turtles by the railway tracks behind my house, and I wasn't like that at all. I really liked doing math puzzles and things like that when I was a kid. I was really into... Um, Mathematics and computers and things like that. At some point during my early schooling days, I won some sort of academic contest. And the prize, one of the prizes in that contest was a book by Stephen Jay Gould. So, Stephen Jay Gould is a famous evolutionary biologist and a famous popularizer of science. So, he wrote essays about uh, macroevolution, which is evolution over long time scales. And I remember reading that book and thinking, that these were the only questions that really mattered. That's how it struck me at the time, that everything else seemed so shallow and trivial, all the things that happened in our lives, compared to the things that happen over the grander sweep of time of the universe. Then when I got into college, I went through a series of misadventures, thinking that I would be a vet or an engineer, and none of that stuck. And at some point during that whole journey, uh, a a professor said to me, you know, they use a lot of math and computers in evolutionary biology. You should go check that out. And so I went to talk to a professor. This was at Iowa State University. And and the professor was Fred Jansen. I ended up in his lab, which was a lab of evolutionary herpetology. And from the first day in that lab, uh, Fred introduced me to all these mathematical ideas that were common in evolutionary biology. And I was just hooked. I was like, this is what I want to do.
0: Well, so in addition to your interest in in mathematics and computer science, you also spent several years in the Peace Corps in the Solomon Islands. Did that experience shape the direction of your career and your research?
1: Yeah, totally. So I uh, was a Peace Corps volunteer in the Solomon Islands, and the Solomons are part of Melanesia. And so it's really the the people there that had a strong influence on me And I think the effect that's had on my life is in the way that I think about and deal with people Um, and just the the kind of Melanesian philosophy of, I don't know how to describe it exactly. Um, It has less ego involvement, I think, than our typical North American way of thinking about things. And that has really helped me run my lab in a more healthy way, I think.
0: Coming from a Western perspective and especially in the, big science is right ego is a very big part yeah of people's career and so yeah being able yeah
1: to- well i think there's a little bit of like in some labs there's an idea that science is all about competition and they're trying to compete with other labs and that they think that science is driven and that way it's like a capitalistic kind of approach my lab doesn't treat things that way and i'm not the only one so yeah. there's there's a group of of us and, and, I think all fields of science, but in evolutionary biology in particular, that are trying to build a new way of doing science that's more cooperative and less uh, about competition and ego.
0: Well, so that's actually a great lead into one of my next questions. You are you are a committed proponent of open science practices. Can you share a little bit more about what, what this open science movement is and how it differs from traditional models of science and publishing?
1: Yeah, for sure. So. Um, As an open science advocate, uh, myself and other people who try to practice this, uh, one of the core beliefs is that our scientific information, when we publish it in the form of scientific papers, that's our main product as scientists, that those academic papers should be freely available to anyone around the world who wants to get at them. Um, I think people are kind of shocked if they don't know about how the system works or how it has worked in the past, which is basically if I were to, to characterize or caricature the old system, Uh, the funding for science research mostly comes from governments. So from taxpayers, the scientists carry out that work. And then when they publish that work, it gets published by journals often that are trying to make a profit. And so they're selling those papers, sometimes at a very high cost and they're often being bought by like libraries like big libraries at uc berkeley or at harvard will have a huge budget to, to pay for the subscriptions to these scientific journals and the the scientists who write the papers that are published in these journals don't get paid by the journals at all they work for free and in fact the whole system is based on having scientists work for free so we review the papers we edit the papers we write the papers we publish the papers and then someone else is is charging people to see them and it's a little bit of a crazy system. So open science is a different way of doing things. Not that it removes all the financial parts of this, but the idea with open science is that, you know, we publish papers that are open access. And so if it's an open access paper, that means, and many of my papers that I publish for my lab are like that, almost all, uh, especially in the last 15 years. That means that you can go on the web and download the paper. Anyone in the world can, can, can get it. The other part that's more particular to my work as someone in bioinformatics, so in like mathematical computational biology, is that not only is the paper openly available to anyone in the world, but all the data and all the computer code required to analyze that data is also freely available on the web for anyone. So someone could be interested in one of my projects, they could go find the paper, get the PDF, they could go get the data that we analyzed in that paper, they could get all the computer code, they could reanalyze all the data, they could change something in our code, maybe they come to different conclusions than us. And so you can kind of see how this open science ecosystem works together to promote accountability, reproducibility and allow science to build on previous work.
0: Yeah, which is you know something that, I don't know, it would be nice to see more of that, let's see. <laughs> Put yeah, because yeah that reproducibility part is so huge right if somebody can take that same data set and analyze it and come to the same conclusion it really does a lot to increase the validity the reliability really just the, those outcomes and well so kind of on that on that note with open science one of the things that you have done you mentioned these these software packages and everything that you've developed that are available. You've also developed and used that software, right, to create um, OneZoom, which if you go, I believe it's OneZoom.org. I can't. Yeah, that's right. OneZoom.org. OneZoom.org, which is an interactive tree of life model that maps the evolutionary and genetic connections between all known life on earth. It really is incredible. I mean, it's just, so so in depth at least from my you know in my experience it's one of the only resources out there that really shows you the entire tree of life and where how everything is connected talk a little bit about the one zoom tool and why it's a valuable tool for researchers and educators and even the general
1: public Yeah, that's great. I'd love to talk about that. And I want to make sure that I um, credit this to James Rosendell. So James was a postdoc here in my lab at the University of Idaho. And James is the one that came up with the idea for OneZoom and implemented the code to build it. Um, My role was really to tell James that what he was doing was amazing (laughs) and help him get it out into the world. And nowadays we have another collaborator, Yan Wong, who is uh, also working on the OneZoom team and doing all sorts of amazing things with that code. And those two should really uh, be getting the credit for producing this wonderful resource. But having said that, let me tell you why I think it's great. Um, The analogy that I like to use when I talk about OneZoom is the analogy when people first went to the moon and there's a famous photo from that time of the earth rising over the horizon of the moon. And just that photo alone is such a shift in perspective uh, from, you know, if you're a human on the earth, it's hard to f- remember that we're on this tiny, fragile blue ball surrounded by cold, mindless nothingness in every direction for millions of miles. And that kind of perspective change is really profound and important. And one of the ideas behind OneZoom was to create something like that, but for this other scientific concept of the tree of life. So OneZoom is built on fractals that's why it's called One Zoom, so you can zoom in. I'm not going to go into fractals too much here, but you can zoom in on One Zoom and see the Tree of Life in more and more detail. Because you, you, the Tree of Life, if we were to just you know, write the names of species and connect them all according to their evolutionary history, which is what we're doing, there's too many species on the Earth it would be too big. So we use fractals to be able to convey that on one web page. And if you find humans in one zoom, for example, you'll see that we're a leaf on the tree of life and we're surrounded by our close relatives, things like chimpanzees and gorillas. But really, like as you zoom all the way out, you can see that we're this leaf on the giant tree of all life on Earth. And this is a really profound concept that connects us to every other living thing. This is especially important because Earth is the only planet that we know of and the entire universe that has life on it. There probably is life in other places that we haven't discovered yet, but we, we don't know about that yet. And so every living thing that we know about is part of this one tree that we're also connected to. And to me, that's such a perspective changer to think about life in that way.
0: Yeah, and there and, and you're right. The the Just the depth and the diversity that you see on one zoom. I was actually in there today looking, and I was looking at the slime molds, right? And there's this one, whatever, dog vomit, slime mold or whatever it is or it's called witches spit in other languages and yeah was like holy cow just the diversity is incredible
1: yeah well um, let me put in a plug here too that uh, anyone can sponsor a leaf on one zoom for a small fee and you could for example dedicate this witch's spit slime mold to one of your friends or enemies uh, as you wish <laughs> and I would encourage people to do that. I, I, my, the purple frog is sponsored in my honor. That's one of my favorite species.
0: Yeah. No, that's that's actually a great pitch. I was noticing that too. In the world today, we see uh, all sorts of articles and other things talking about the biodiversity and how biodiversity is slowly being degraded. Species are going extinct. I don't even know the rate that people are saying they're going extinct, but how does biodiversity benefit an ecosystem and what are the consequences of a loss of biodiversity in an ecosystem or in our world?
1: Biodiversity is really a cornerstone of what we care about as ecologists that are thinking about and ecologists are thinking about how species live together on the earth. Ecosystems that have their full complement of biodiversity, that is they have the number of species that they're supposed to have. And some are more diverse than others. So the main pattern really is a latitudinal gradient where the most species are concentrated around the equator and they get less and less as they go to the poles. But in any particular place, there's sort of like a maximally biodiverse ecosystem that you you can have. One of the ways that we like to think about this in the field of ecology is in terms of ecosystem functioning. So an ecosystem function is like a thing that an ecosystem does, a process that is facilitated by an ecosystem. And this may sound kind of abstract, but it's not, actually. So just for example, one ecosystem function is turning sunlight into living tissue. Um, and we, we eat that as food. So like these, these things can be super practical things that matter for humans. Another example is um, uh, ecosystems can purify the water that passes through them and produce the clean running streams that we rely on in our cities, lakes and streams for the, the water supplies that we have. So those kind of things are ecosystem functions. And one of the, the the basic rules that we know about ecosystem functioning and ecology is that the more biodiversity that an ecosystem harbors, the better that it's able to carry out all those functions. And some of those functions are things that we really rely on as humans for... Uh, basic survival needs or even some of the, the things that go beyond basic survival that make our lives uh, worth living and so if we want to think about conservation in terms of like how does it benefit humans i think ecosystem functioning is the way to think about it Uh, There have been a lot of studies that people have done to try to translate this into, into financial terms because people seem to respond to that a lot better than this abstract stuff that I'm saying. And I'm not an expert in this area, but what I would say if I was summarizing that literature is that the services that natural ecosystems provide to humans are immensely valuable in monetary terms. And if we destroy them all and replace them by our technology, it will be, it would be absurdly expensive and catastrophic in terms of the consequences that that would have on our lives.
0: So why should somebody sitting in their living room binging on the latest Netflix series care about evolution?
1: That's a good question. So you, there are a few ways to think about this. (laughs) One is that evolution has direct effects on our lives. So, um, humans are having an effect on evolution and evolution is affecting us. So the things that, uh, infect us, like our diseases are evolving. We need to know about that. You need to think about evolution in terms of how you think about your own health as a human. Also, many of the technologies that you might be using to make your life better have some kind of part at their core that is related in some way to evolution. So for example, if you're watching Netflix, probably somewhere behind the scenes is some kind of machine learning or evolutionary algorithm that's deciding which shows to show you next. And there's a common mathematical core between that and theories of evolution. And the other thing is that evolution, so I like to kind of like switch this up a little bit because I, I, I do know that people like to know, like how does this affect us as humans and, and, and things like that? But this one of the things that's that's beneficial about knowing that we're a part of the tree of life is to help us shift away from this narcissistic perspective of only viewing the world through our human lens. And I think evolution can help make that transition by realizing that there are other things out there that are on the tree of life that have their own inherent value. We're connected to them. They're a leaf on the tree of life like we are.
0: Yeah. So can can a more... I guess, holistic understanding of evolution
1: helps somebody become
0: a better person?
1: Well, I would think that it could, yeah. Um, I mean, I guess part of me wants to say, it doesn't matter if it helps you or not, it is true. And so it's worth knowing because of that. This is is like, it seems obvious, but actually there's like areas where this becomes really relevant. Like if people are trying to study evolutionary psychology and doing it in a kind of half-assed way, they could very easily give you terrible advice. I think that the, from a broader point of view, though, uh, seeing humans for what we are, which is a short-lived ephemeral leaf on the tree of life that has many other leaves, is really a life-changing point of view. And what I would also say is that if you're thinking about larger timescales and you think about, let's say that humans survive another thousand years, that's, seems like a long time to us that's hardly any time at all that's really a fraction of the amount of time that we've existed so far i'm not sure that we'll still be around in a thousand years but let's say that we are and those people a thousand years from now are looking back at what we did they're really not going to care that much about all the things that we care about on our on our meager human time scales they're going to care about these things that happen over longer time scales about our impacts on evolution in the tree of life if we for example manage to kill off 30 or 40 percent of the species that live on the earth, 30 or 40 percent of the species that took four billion years to form and we killed them all off in a span of 100 years. um, That's really all that's going to matter that we did. It doesn't matter that we made some good TV shows or wrote some neat poems or novels or made cars or stuff like that. No one cares. What matters is that you destroyed this beautiful thing that took millions of years to uh, evolve.
0: So really what you're saying in the overall scheme of things is the fact that I didn't even get through half of my to-do list today really doesn't matter.
1: It really doesn't in the cosmic scheme of things. (laughs) So if you find that helpful and that makes you a better person, then I'm all for it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love that perspective. I do think, yeah, we're very very myopic in the way that we understand our place in the world and our connection to everybody else. So, okay. Is there a particular funny story or a memorable event that really helped uh, shape the direction of your career? Is there is there a moment you know where the, I don't know that was formative?
1: I think there was a moment for me that really crystallized the way that I think about the connection between evolution and the rest of the world so this is a long time ago this is probably in 2006 i was a postdoc at the university of british columbia in vancouver and up to that point i had just been studying evolution and over pretty deep time scales i'd been studying these little lizards that live on islands in the indian ocean they're called day geckos they're like the geico gecko but like their real version and they don't talk and they're not super annoying um and when I went to the University of British Columbia, I switched gears to study these fish called stickleback. And stickleback are a really famous example in evolutionary biology because they form new species extremely rapidly by our reckoning. So, in some of the lakes that you find in British Columbia, for example, there are pairs of species, like baby species, that have just formed. And we know they formed over the last 10,000 years because that whole area was covered by ice before that. So, these fish came from the ocean, invaded the lakes, and formed a new species in 10,000 years. This is really a nice opportunity for evolutionary biologists to study speciation in real time. We can see it happening. Um, and I went to British Columbia, and my advisor there, Dolph Schluter, who's a professor, wanted to see if that speciation, this formation of these two fish from one, had an effect on the ecosystems where the fish were living. So in the new species pairs, one of the fish is, lives on the bottom of the lakes and one lives on the top. Basically, they are dividing up the habitat. So for this experiment, we set up a bunch of cattle tanks, like big cattle tanks out in a field we filled them with water. We put uh, plants and, and, and microorganisms in the tanks, and then we introduced these fish in various combinations. So we put like an intermediate, like the ancestral fish in some tanks, just the top dweller in some tanks, just the bottom dweller, and then the species pair in other tanks. And I was a little skeptical about this experiment, honestly. Like, I like the idea that evolution would feed back and affect ecosystems, but I was like, I don't know. The world's a complicated place. We'll see. Um, We put put the fish in the tanks. We went away, and this is I was working with an undergrad who later became a student in my lab, Simone de Roche. And Simone and I went out to the tanks after a few weeks, and it was a sunny day. And we looked out over these tanks, and it was like, The tanks weren't marked in any way of which treatment they were in, which ones had the single fish, which ones had the pears, but you could just tell. Like something had happened to these tanks. Some of them were brown, some of them were clear, some had explosive plant growth, others didn't. It was just like, it was unbelievable to me how clear it was just with my eyes. I will say that we, for that whole, we collected those tanks, we measured them in all sorts of ways, and we could not explain why they were different at all, until we redid the entire experiment with a real ecosystems ecologist, Blake Matthews, to help us figure it out. So it took a whole another year and a half to explain that difference, that, but we saw it right away. And it was such a, to me, it was profound to see this like connection between what I'd been thinking about, which is how new species form, and then how ecosystems function, like how lakes get really productive or unproductive or clear, murky, things like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I didn't realize that sticklebacks, which I mean, as a kid, I remember seeing stuff in school about sticklebacks and, you know, I think they're used a lot within uh, biology and everything else, but I didn't realize that they had that sort of rapid evolution.
1: Yeah. So they also like the, just the transition from saltwater to freshwater and stickleback is something that is also highly predictable, highly repeatable and fast. And so, in every part of the world, as the glaciers receded, uh, marine stickleback invaded freshwater, and they always evolve in the same way. They lose their armor, they get smaller, their spines get smaller, because there's not as many predators around in these freshwater ecosystems. And we've really learned a lot about how evolution occurs from studying the details of this transition from of stickleback. Huh.
0: So if people wanted to learn more about your work, where should they go?
1: uh they could go to uh my website but maybe even a better place to go would be to go to my google scholar profile so if you go on google scholar and look for me then you can find a list of my scientific papers and most of them they should be able to access because they should be uh, open access uh, research papers so that would be uh, uh, probably the best place to go
0: it's incredible when you look at your productivity you published over a, what over 100 scientific articles in just the last 10 something years i don't know or more a
1: lot, a lot yeah
0: yeah that's incredible well i like okay. finishing
1: things <laughs> that's the <laughs> one thing i really like
0: <laughs> i wish i did too i like starting things it's the finishing that's hard that's dr luke harman from the university of idaho dr harman's work can be found on google scholar searching under his name Luke Harmon and you can check out the OneZoom Interactive Tree of Life Project at OneZoom.org. Luke, thank you for being here. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio with support from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University and if you happen to live in Utah you can listen to us every Thursday at 10:30 a.m on UPR. If you miss us then You can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew Wapit. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.